Well, Doug Green, as I live and breathe. Hey, good morning, Kim Maxwell. You look very fetching in your bow tie. Say more of that. Say more of that. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You know, when I hear my voice, I, 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 I notice it's a distinctly gay voice. And I, I am, I'm less and less horrified by that. <laughs> Ken, let me know whenever you're ready because I'm just going to... I'm gonna... rolling right now. Oh, you are? Ah, he's rolling. He's, he's ready for us to right have a conversation. Now. Let's do it. <laughs> well, let's get right to it. Um, first question. Here we go. Sometimes the events in our lives and how we and the people we love respond to those events have a profound effect on who we become. Just Out in Jack's parts one and two seem to be those kinds of stories or events. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. This is one of those seminal stories of my life. And it's a story that I have told in bits and pieces, fits and starts, but it has, through the process that I've gone through with you, it's become such a palpable, substantial part of who I think I am, which is remarkable. That's all you. No, you. No, you. story. Welcome back to the Townies podcast. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a townie. I'm a townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same. To go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories. Because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the Neighborhood. Episode 18, Just Out in Jacks. Here is Doug Green with Just Out in Jacks, Part 1. Jacksonville, Florida, 1977. The ideal setting for a late adolescent identity crisis. <laughs> Dubbed the bold new city of the South by the Chamber of Commerce, Jacksonville may not be bold, but it is new, and it's definitely the South. Straddling the huge and sleepy St. John's River, Jacksonville in 77 is this confederacy of communities most closely akin to the towns of southernmost Georgia. While in South Florida, we have mostly refugees from the Northeast, locals here proudly self-identify as Florida crackers. <laughs> My family moved here from small town in Arkansas, so we weren't, really aren't in a position to find fault. We've joined the First Presbyterian Church, and my mom and I have found that the best place to shop isn't out at the mall, but right here in the heart of the city. Not that far from where we worship, and actually not that far from a club called Oz, where I've been a weekend regular for nearly the whole year that I've been legal. Mom and I love to shop at the May Cohen's flagship store on Hemming Park downtown. I'm going through this phase where man-made fabric is my news best friend, and I'm fingering a brown nubby polyester shirt with these electric blue and neon orange hieroglyphics that just call out for interpretation. 
I look down at my classic pink Izod polo and my Fred Perry tinnies. If I am ever going to be anything but single, I'm going to have to start sending different fashion messages. <laughs> and this certainly qualifies. I want to show it to my mom, so I look around for her. And no sooner have I called, hey mom, when I lock eyes with a friend from the club, standing just beyond my mother and backlit by the front of the store is Bill Kincaid, AKA Billy Bell Kincaid, the biggest black drag queen on the gay chitlin circuit, <laughs> waving and calling my name. Doug Green as I live and breathe. Aren't you just a little out of your neighborhood, girlfriend? And he or she, what can I say? It's complicated. Is clucking and swishing right on through the store, passing my mother at the cosmetics counter and causing her to look completely constipated. <laughs> I freeze. I know I should turn and duck into the dressing room and pretend this isn't happening, but I can't. Billy Bell is just about the nicest person that I've met since we moved here. Pretending I don't know her would be the ultimate chicken shit maneuver. And so I give a weak little, hey, Belle. And she throws her arms around me and picks me up like a rag doll right there in men's furnishings. <laughs> On the way home in the car, we're quiet until mom says, uh, hun, who was that uh, gentleman you were talking with in my Cohen? Sometimes in the South, we talk about someone as a gentleman or a lady, even though we totally don't think of them in that way. It's completely condescending. A friend, I tell her. Her mouth looks like she's replaying a bridge hand that didn't go quite the way she expected. Mom, I'm gay. I've been meaning to tell you. I, I, I wasn't sure. How you take it, Dr. Laughlin, my head doctor, has been after me for about a year to tell you and Dad, and I just didn't get around to it. Uh, I haven't told Dad either. I'm sorry. I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm even more worried about what he might say. Is that man your lover? <laughs> Lord, no. Bill is a performer at a club that I go to in the city, but he's just a friend, not my lover. And then I start to laugh because of the tension and my mom's question and the very idea of me and Billy Bell Kincaid being lovers. And I get so tickled that the tears start rolling down my face and my eyes get a little blurry. Do you need to pull over and let me drive, sweetheart? No, mom. I'll be fine. Will you? Will you be okay? Of course. No offense to Dr. Laughlin, but this is not a total surprise. <laughs> I love you no matter what, and to tell you the God's truth, I think you're going to do quite well with men. <laughs> As for your dad, you'll have to tell him yourself and find out. Wow, that didn't go as bad as I had expected. I made up all kinds of horrible possibilities, considering that just that summer, Anita Bryant had launched her Save Our Children campaign in Dade County and unleashed thousands of her minions to save Christendom from the likes of me. <laughs> what these people really want behind obscure legal phrases is the legal right to propose to our children that theirs is an acceptable alternate way of life. I will launch a crusade to stop it such as this country has not seen before. This woman is terrifying. It's no surprise that most of us are sitting around with our thumbs up our butts wondering what to do. Thank God for the drag queens. They know what to do, mostly. Take Erica and Melissa, for example. They are these slightly malevolent blondes who lip sync a virtual who's who of black divas. They are pre-op transsexuals with these perfect breasts and flawless skin. They mime the Pointer Sisters so perfectly, they are literally steamed heat in heels. And here's something strange. I really can't tell them apart. They are these generically beautiful blonde mannequins with a 40s fashion fetish. They exude utter contempt for the whole club scene in a way that makes them irresistibly attractive. And they hate me. Because until recently, I approached them with the frame of mind of a reporter on assignment. Excuse me, where are you ladies from? Uh, 
what do guys usually say when they first notice your penis? <laughs> I am silenced once and for all when I overhear one of them talking about having to appear in court for failing to pay her traffic tickets. She recalls the judge being completely dumbfounded after asking Charles knocking to approach the bench and finding an oddly masculine Marilyn figure looking and giving a shy wave from the center aisle. While I'm fessing up only when pressured to do so, these two are publicly proclaiming who they are and daring anyone to take issue with it. Down at Oz, it's Saturday night, and I make my way to the bar where I desperately try to attract the attention of the bartender with the t-shirt that declares, I am the man from Nantucket. <laughs> He's older, probably like 30 or something, and that totally adds to his allure. He gives me my Tom Collins, counts my change, and dismisses me with a quick, thanks, hon, which causes me to check my outfit and my hair in the mirror behind the bar. I bought this black jumpsuit and these matching black platform shoes in L.A. I consider that they may be a little fashion forward for Jacksonville. The bartender is, I don't know, so regular, and I wonder briefly if I could borrow some clothes from my older brother, Hal. On stage, David, an actor that I know from the university, is definitely the tallest nun I've ever seen. He stands there in his black habit, his face nearly as white as his wimple, and a bluish light is streaming over him as he begins lip-syncing Climb Every Mountain from The Sound of Music. I love that song. I want to join in, but the tempo changes, and suddenly he's lifting his habit and roller skating across the stage to the beat of Rita Coolidge's Your Love Keeps Lifting Me. Everyone in the club jumps to their feet, cheering and egging him on as David lifts his habit higher, higher, showing more and more leg, Wait, is that a, oh, hun, it definitely is. For effect, David is sporting this giant strap-on dildo that looks like something you'd have to mail order and that would come in a brown shoebox, size 13. I am wondering if my eyes are playing tricks on me when the music changes again and David minds the maudlin version of My Little Corner of the World by the beauty queen turned crusader, Anita Bryant. As the medley comes to a close, David removes his wimple in a sweeping gesture, taps the mic to make sure it's live, and addresses us in his real David voice, the voice of a middle-aged queen with a drawl and a receding hairline. An hour this past week, someone threw a pie in Anita Bryant's face. The crowd cheers, and David frowns at us. I am saddened by this violent and shocking turn of events. And I keep asking myself over and over again, why didn't we think of that? And the crowd roars back at him even louder. As you know, Bryant's Save Our Children campaign resulted in the repeal of Dade County's anti-discrimination ban. Basically, this means Dade County can fire anyone who's gay, no questions asked. And to hear Bryant tell it, this is only the beginning. She is gunning for us, and the only defense we have now is to come out en masse and find out who our friends are. It's clearly that, or get close enough to throw some water on her and watch her melt. <laughs> Until then, my little pretties, watch out for flying monkeys. Good night and God bless. Can be a disappointing time of night, especially if you let certain facts get to you, like the fact that the cute bartender had once again failed to notice how hot I am. <laughs> or you can embrace the possibility that you will go home alone and live to return to the city another night. In the parking lot, I stand next to my blue Volkswagen and shimmy out of my smoky black jumpsuit. I'm pushing aside leg warmers and jazz oxfords and an assortment of t-shirts, I pull a pair of Daisy Dukes and a wife beater out of the giant dance duffel that lives in my back seat and dress quickly beside the car. I turn up the radio and wind through the empty downtown streets and head south, crossing the river on the Main Street Bridge. I can see the taillights of one car in the distance, but other than that, I-95 is deserted. I roll down the windows, let the wind have its way with my hair. I will spend the night alone. 
Not just because the bartender doesn't know I exist, but because my parents said something about escaping to the beach for the weekend, so I'll have the house to myself. I have the feeling of weightlessness as I fly through the darkness in my little Volks, and I am thinking to myself that the dependability of German engineering is a mighty wonderful thing. <laughs> when suddenly the car loses power, sputtering as I steer to the shoulder of the empty section of the interstate where I find myself at exactly 2.27 a.m. on the morning of October 27, 1977. I collect myself and try to calculate my location. I haven't reached Butler Boulevard, so I know I'm about four miles from home. I run this distance regularly. I can do this. Then I start looking for shoes. I have a choice between the black platforms I wore to the club, <laughs> a pair of flip-flops that have been mended with duct tape, and two different pairs of jazz Oxfords, one in basic black and the other in a red suede. I consider my outfit and make a quick decision. The red suede Oxfords are the sturdiest and I think they'll be okay with my Daisy Dukes. <laughs> Not perfect, but okay, given my situation. I lace on my red dance shoes, sling the bag over my shoulder and set off with a determined stride. I narrow the distance between me and the exit sign for Butler Boulevard. The frogs and the other critters are loud and the woods on the side of the road is thick. There are alligators. I know, because I've actually been chased by one out walking in our neighborhood at night. I start to sing. Oddly, it's that Bryant song. If you care to stay in my little corner of the world, we can dream a dream in my little corner of the world. A car approaches, and I veer to the very edge of the pavement and try to stay on key. I always knew I'd find someone like you so welcome to. Just as I'm sure it's going to pass, I notice the car has slowed and is behind me on the shoulder. I stop and wait for it to pull alongside. It's a very shiny Chevy Impala Supersport. This particular muscle car has been my brother Hal's favorite for years. He likes the Supersport as much as I like that new moisturizer from Clinique. <laughs> anyway, the shiny Chevy is thrumming there beside me. I'm relieved and slightly curious. Someone rolls down a window and calls out, Hey, you need a lift? I peer into the window at the driver and the three passengers. They look like cute high school boys with crew cuts and freakishly low widow's peaks. Two of them step out and help me into the back seat. They ask where I'm headed. I give them directions. We all sit in silence as we make our way down Southside Boulevard. I see the dim yellow light at the entrance to my subdivision disappear as we pass by. We make a left turn down an unmarked dirt road there's no question about it now. The flying monkeys have landed. Believe 
Sarah Hawley with her beautiful single, Believe. To learn more about the music and performers featured on the Townies Podcast, please visit thetowniespodcast.org. So not to date either one of us, but the event itself happened in the 1970s. And yet you wrote these stories recently and several years apart. It sort of seems like these stories have just been banging around in your head waiting to get out. Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, this was a major traumatic experience. So it was not something that was uh, easy for me to have enough distance from to see it as, oh, yeah, this will be a great story that I'll be able to tell uh, someday. No, I literally felt like I'd been kidnapped and, um, and you know, the whole thing was like being hit by a truck. Mm-hmm. And so very, very um, traumatic at the time. But I think uh, that was the way it evolved over time. I, I really think today, when I think about 
trauma, there's the actual event that happens, and then there's the evolving story that we tell about it. Mm -hmm. And so these two things are like part one and part two. Part one is like some really shitty stuff happened to me. Mm -hmm. And then part two is, wow, in every trauma, there is the seed of victory and uh, actual accomplishment in life, something that you can look back on and say, that meant something. I wasn't just kidnapped and threatened with uh, an untimely death, but actually this was an event that helped to catalyze my growth as a person. I know because of our work together that you are a major advocate for a lot of marginalized and underserved communities. I try to be. Oh, Doug, you represent so many people so well. These are very challenging times. There is a lot of anger and hate being expressed out there. What would you say to a young up-and-comer from one of those communities? How do they not just survive, but actually thrive and keep their hearts open and chase their dreams? How do they keep things in perspective and remain authentic and true to themselves? Because I think you do a beautiful job of juggling all of that. Mm, thank you, Kim. So ah, that's such a good question. And when I think about the younger people who are coming up and finding their their legs the, and their voices, I think, you know, there's so much opportunity to be angry. And I get it. And I feel that. I share that anger. And I want to use that as fuel to continue the fight and to push back against injustice. That's only half the story, though. The other half of the story is recognizing that having an outsider's perspective seeing things from the edge, seeing things in a uniquely different way than everybody else on the planet is a gift. It's a gift that my parents pointed out to me. And for the longest time, I wondered, why me? Why was I spared in my family of origin all that hatefulness that so many other people endured? And the only thing that I can say is that that has allowed me to fully pursue this idea of being gay is a gift. It is something that's got rich spiritual reward within it all by itself, regardless of circumstance. And so that's what I would tell people is that, yes, you've had trauma. Growing up gay in America is a traumatic childhood experience. There's no question about it. But you've also got superpowers that you cannot even imagine. Such riches in there, just by virtue of the fact that you were born with this unique sexual, personal, spiritual take on life. That was lovely. One of the things that we've talked about is creating an environment for this play to live in. And we've talked about instead of performing these pieces in theaters, performing them in nightclubs and drag clubs. Mm. Since we worked on these stories last, there was the horrific attack at the Pulse nightclub. Has that affected your vision of performing this play in a nightclub? I would love to hear you talk about how the venue would affect you as a writer, as a performer, and as an activist. That's a really good question. I'm just so upset about what happened at the Pulse nightclub, and I don't think I fully processed the the pain of that moment in um, in gay life and American life yet. So, uh, but I do think that, that it increases my, um, my feeling that this is uh, a good direction to go, to, to take this to the community where uh, gay people live, connect, uh, interact. Um, and I also hope that it would be an opportunity for 
other people across the um, you know spectrum to come in and experience what we experience. That you know to be in gay space for a time and experience what that feels like to us—a a safety zone, which is what gay clubs are and should be. Uh, that you know that's queer space. That's ours. And it's a place where we can feel absolutely protected from the kind of thing that happened at Pulse and have the rest of the community really understand the importance of that and and the reason that we have that, uh, that, uh, you know, the reason there are gay clubs uh, and uh, the reason that we have uh, pride festivals and the reason we have other uh, queer spaces is to create a, a resting place for us uh, in this journey, which is not always that easy. And now, Just Out in Jack's Part 2 with Doug Green. So I'm on this dark road in a car full of skinheads, wedged between these four G.I. Joe wannabes. The year is 1977, and Anita Bryant's Save Our Children's campaign has unleashed thousands of her minions to save Christendom from the likes of me. (laughs) We're headed into the Pine Barrens outside Jacksonville, Florida, where suburbia meets James Dickey's deliverance. (laughs) The driver and the guy next to him lean toward each other and whisper conspiratorially. The air in the car reeks of butch wax and badass. In short, a gay Ken doll fantasy gone terribly wrong. It's just moments after I broke down on the interstate while heading home after the last call at Club Oz. I changed into a wife beater and Daisy Dukes because I couldn't stand the stench of the smoky black jumpsuit I had danced in earlier. I'm sporting red jazz Oxfords because I figured they would be much sturdier for the walk than the platforms I'd worn to the club. And these boys aren't that well-groomed either. In their torn jeans and their heavy metal concert t-shirts. Whenever I'd imagined my kidnapping, I'd been wearing a trendy linen suit with Italian loafers, no socks. My kidnappers had been dressed in dark suits like the ushers at church. That's what I love about being Presbyterian, the fashions. That and the fact that everyone gets communion in their own separate sanitized little shot glass. I can't be sure, but I don't think these boys go to first prez. Staring at the back of the driver's buzz cut, the him onward Christian soldiers is playing in a loop inside my head. And being the Presbyterian in peril that I am, the story of Joseph comes to mind. Or more accurately, my dad's retelling of the Joseph story recently, which confirmed once and for all that he is a Presbyterian by marriage only. (laughs) We're gathered one evening after supper, and my sister and I ask him to tell us a story about what it was like when he was a boy. He begins by telling that my grandfather gave him a membership to the Woodman of the World for his fifth birthday. Now, the Woodman of the World is like other fraternal organizations, the Elks, the Moose, only much more rednecky, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) The young woodman, and five years old is not considered too young, are inducted into the woodman of the world in a secret society in a ceremony at an official woodman's lodge. The lodge where my dad was initiated was a one-room cinder block structure at the end of a dirt road way out in the country near his hometown of Brown Springs, Arkansas. I am thrown by his mention of the dirt road. It's hard to picture my dad, given his reputation. Anyone who knew him as a child will testify he did not like to get his clothes dirty. (laughs) We're alike in that way. From the country, but not of the country. (laughs) I figured that this unlikely induction into the woodman of the world involved either a bribe or a blindfold. The ceremony is structured around the life of Joseph, who was sold by his brothers, Reuben, Asher, Gad, and the rest of them, into slavery because they didn't like how he dressed in this fabulous, colorful coat and got more attention from Joseph than the rest of them. Sound familiar? Anyway, he manages to become this amazing person in spite of all the hatred and bigotry. 
saving both his new country, Egypt, and his family from certain ruin with his superhero-like powers of prophecy. Novitiates move in a serpentine rotation throughout the lodge and act out a series of scenes in which they star as Joseph, enjoying being the favorite of Jacob and Rachel, parading around in the coat of many colors, getting sold as a slave, becoming the Pharaoh's man, predicting the drought, <laughs> and generously forgiving the brothers who betrayed him. Imagine these young boys, five and six years old, acting in an ancient novella in a cinder block meeting hall down a dark and lightly traveled road. Think focus on the family meets Tim Burton. <laughs> My dad arrives at the front of the lodge and the final station in the ceremony. It includes an Old Testament-style altar complete with the carcass of a slain lamb that's been taxidermied to preserve its freshly dead look. He's blindfolded. See, I knew there was a blindfold involved. <laughs> and asked to place both hands on the altar and seek his vision. My dad tells us that the elder woodsmen have connected the altar to a car battery beneath the cloth that drapes the altar. And an electric current passes through my body. And my sister and I shout at once. And then I begged your papa to take me home. He's, dead silence. Then my mom says, well, Roy, that explains so much. <laughs> and I am thinking of her and actually smiling as the Chevy Super Sport pulls to a stop in a small clearing at a fork in the road. To the right is an old strip mine, and to the left, an overgrown fire road that leads to a golf course near my house. Outside, the car, the boys surround me, and the driver stands directly in front of me and fixes me with this crazy simian gaze. What the fuck are we gonna do with you, faggot? And before I have a chance to think of a better idea, I go all biblical on him and address him as Joseph's big brother. Don't do anything you're gonna regret, Reuben. And I think for a moment the reference might not be lost on him because he takes about a half a step back and then he hauls off and throws a punch at me that engages his entire body. But I'm quick. I'm the son of a point guard. I'm a dancer. I dodge the blow. His forward momentum carries him past me and he does this perfect face plant in the clearing. And I'm pretty sure I hear one of the boys stifling a laugh. <laughs> I'm certain the driver will be angry when he gets up. And directly in front of me, the way home beckons, and suddenly I'm dashing down the sandy fire road in my red jazz Oxfords. And I'm just as concerned about the alligators and the other creatures in the thick woods as I am about the flying monkeys behind me. <laughs> to calm my mind, I begin to shout the names of Joseph's brothers into the night. Reuben! Napoli! Simeon! I shout as I approach the golf course. I call out, Levi, as I vault a chain-link fence in one movement, very Nureyev. <laughs> and then I resume the name-calling as I run the length of a fairway that will take me to within a block of home. Benjamin, Judah, Dan, Gad! And about Gad, I realize I'm going to make it home safe in one piece, and I give a celebratory shout-out to my remaining brothers. Issachar, Zebulun, Asher! I love you guys. In the kitchen, with the door locked and bolted behind me, it takes a few minutes for me to catch my breath and get my heart rate under control. I notice the time. 3.34 a.m., just over an hour since my car broke down. I want to wake someone up and tell them the whole saga, but I'm home alone. I wash my face and get into bed, but every car conjures the image of a skinny redneck repelling from the roof and crashing through the bedroom window. And so I get up, I lock myself into my parents' room and fall into a fitful sleep on their bed. In the morning, I fry myself a couple of eggs and eat alone at the breakfast table, and then I phone my parents at the beach. I tell them the whole story, minus the gay parts. <sighs> Don't leave. I'll be right there, my dad says. And the minutes drag by, but he must have left immediately because within the hour he's pulling into the garage. 
Let's go get your car. I bet it just needs gas. I got a can in my trunk and we can stop on the way. We get into his Dodge sedan. It's the first time we've been alone together in several weeks. I, I, I think I've been avoiding him. We get gas and take the interstate. One exit past the stretch where I left my car last night. Approaching the Volks from behind, I can see from a distance that something's amiss. It registers as we pull onto the shoulder. The rear window has been shattered. We get out for a better look and circle the car in silence, taking in the broken windows and the slashed tires and the hastily spray-painted message, die, faggot. My dad puts his arm over my shoulder and steers me back to the car. I'll take care of this. I fold myself into the smallest possible space in the passenger seat. All this energy spent worrying about telling him only to be outed by a marauding band of flying monkeys. I'm definitely dreading the talk, and yet I sense it's going to happen any minute. When my shrank Laughlin asked me to talk about my relationship with my dad, I told him about the assist. We do this thing when I visit him at the bank. He takes a piece of paper from his desk and he crushes it into a tiny little ball with a totally intense look on his face. And then he throws it to me with a beautiful hook shot and I catch it and drop it into the trash basket in the corner trash can by his door. Laughlin laughs saying, and my dad sounds like the kind of jock who'd like to think about me out chasing skirts in a very hetero kind of way. We take the Bay Meadows exit in silence before he says, hey, how about pizza? And so there we sit with a medium pepperoni pizza and a long, awkward silence between us. Uh, about the whole die faggot thing, which is when he reaches out and puts his hand on my arm you know, son, I have always been struck by the contributions of gay men throughout history. Those guys have no idea who they're dealing with. You could be the next Von Steuben. Von Hooben? <laughs> von Steuben, he says with a playful smirk, and I'm intrigued. I didn't think my dad knew any gay people besides the guy who does the branches at the bank. <laughs> yep. It seems Von Steuben came to Valley Forge with nothing more than a trunk full of elegant military uniforms, a miniature greyhound named Azor, and a handsome secretary named Pierre Etienne. And, and he pretty much single-handedly whipped the Revolutionary Army into shape, so in the spring of 78 they were ready to kick some British ass. Amazing, I think. This could explain my lifelong fascination with G.I. Joe. <laughs> Our similarities, obsessed with physical discipline, hairless and smooth as molded plastic, and an unrequited crush on every Ken doll who happens into the barracks. Hey, hun, did I lose you? I'm back at the pizza place with my dad exploring gay history. He's taken another tack. What about Alan Turing, the guy who created the prototype for the computer and cracked the German Enigma code? He saved England and the entire free world from the Nazis. How come I don't know about these guys? Why don't they teach this in school? And there's more, because Dad's on a roll. <laughs> Turing killed himself after the English government castrated him chemically with estrogen injections. Wow, that ended well. <laughs> yeah, not pretty, but still, he's a huge hero. Well, not to make this all about me, but it strikes me that I have Turing's knack for codes. I knew that shiny Chevy was trouble the moment it pulled alongside me on the freeway. I can spot a bully in a gym full of school kids dressed in identical Navy PE uniforms. I have actually disappeared by turning myself gunmetal gray to match the lockers at Free Junior High. I know exactly when to lower my voice an octave and scratch in places that don't itch to signaling guy talk that, yeah, man, I'm with you. No, I am not looking at you in that way. Don't flatter yourself, dude. <laughs> Dad interrupts my reverie. And there's the great Tennessee Williams. And I raise him with, 
and the great Oscar Wilde, and Whitman, and Waugh, and Walpole, and Warhol. And at Warhol, he kind of <laughs> pulls a face because he never did get that whole Campbell's soup can thing. And we are laughing, and the intensity of the moment passes. He pays the check, and outside on the sidewalk, he does something that he hasn't done in a long time. Something that, under other circumstances, would have made me wince. He leans over and plants a kiss on my cheek right there in the bright Florida sun. Later, I search under the bed for my G.I. Joe's original army drag and sew some ribbons and rhinestones onto the jacket. <laughs> I stitch some gold cord down the outside of his green camo pants. And this, just before slipping them back on, I roll up a pair of Ken's socks and tuck them into the front of his tidy whities <laughs> There. Now he looks like a proper descendant of von Steuben. <laughs> I am going to ask you one more thing. We have talked about this multiple times over the years. Can you speak to the significant loss and isolation you experienced and the gay community experienced with the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s and 90s? So many young and vibrant lives lost and a nation seemingly turning a blind eye. Well, it sort of goes back to my comment about um, the evolving relationship that I have with my coming out story with Just Out and Jacks 1 and 2, that there's the actual events and then there's the story we tell about it. And the events, the, the, the AIDS epidemic was a trauma that the gay community and the um, United States will never fully recover from, will always be impacted by that. But the story, the evolving story of the AIDS epidemic is one of heroism, of rising and taking power and assuming visibility and saying, no, this will never happen again. And also the collateral benefit to the rest of the community. Uh, we jumped out there and organized around health and uh, pushed for changes at the FDA that have then impacted health across the, uh, across the population. So uh, there's been this kind of symbiotic relationship between the women's movement, which informed the gay movement, which then informed the women's movement again in terms of health issues. And I think there's been a kind of a, of a, um, a symbiotic relationship within these uh, diverse civil rights and uh, human rights efforts. And, um, my feeling is that uh, the story has yet to be completely uh, told. It'll continue to evolve. But if you think about the change in the way we think about gay community and the thing that the way we think about a gay, uh, uh, gay and lesbian, bisexual and transgender people, that that could not have happened without or would not have happened at the speed it happened and with the ferocity that it happened. Uh, without having gone through the trauma and then the grief and recovery associated with the AIDS epidemic. So there are a number of extraordinary organizations in Southern California, and more specifically in Ventura County, that are support structures for the LBGTQ community. Are there any particular organizations that you think are doing amazing work? Yeah, I want to give a shout out to the folks at the Diversity Collective. They've just opened a center in Ventura. Uh, they had their gala on Saturday night, and they're raising money and providing services for the community. These men and women are the current generation that are taking the baton and running with it. And from where I sit, they look Amazing. They look powerful. They look strong. They look confident. They inspire me. And 
I just want to encourage everyone to get behind them, to volunteer, to donate, to visit the center, uh, give them your support. Thank you, Doug Green. Thank you, Kim Maxwell. I love you, Buckets. I love you so much. Mwah. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of Freshly Minted Stories. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world, to laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. I really loved my hair when I had all that hair. And as it thinned, I, well, one thing I told myself is that I'm going to like uh, buzz buzz it when it gets thin. And that's just going to be my new look. And there's been a little bit of a transition period. But the ace in the hole is that I always admired older men with thinning hair. I always thought they were kind of hot. And so now <laughs> when I look in the mirror, I don't like see a failed version of Doug. I actually see a hot older man. You know, that's what I see every day, Doug. And I, I would, totally see hot older man. I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I'd fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> we are not putting this in the Townies podcast, it's to- but it's awfully cute. I know you're laughing, but it's not going to get in there. <laughs> it's true. Ken just does shit. Ken's okay. the boss of me. I love it. Well, Ken's the boss of me then, too. <laughs>